Ladies and gentlemen, children of all ages, I'm so excited, so excited for episode six of season two of Journeys into Whiteness. I hope you can hear it in my voice. And the reason I'm so excited, besides the content of today's podcast, the content always gets me hyped, but I know I've made y'all wait for a while. And I don't have a good answer as to why. And what I mean made y'all wait. I mean made you wait for new episodes of your favorite podcast. And I don't have a great answer. Life has just happened and gotten in the way. And I haven't been able to do the background work and the recording at the pace that I normally would like to. So I'm excited to finally have the opportunity to record this episode to post it on the Apple Music and social media, and to obviously give y'all a chance to listen, think, reflect, interact, as we take another journey back into my past, and as I discuss yet another example of how whiteness and white privilege was revealed to me in some subtle and maybe not so subtle ways, as an adolescent. And today's story, man, today's story is the perfect intersection of me being 14, being more than a little bit immature, having a shoplifting habit, and white privilege, all kind of smashing head on, and racism, smashing head on. All of those different variables coming to bear on one single incident. And so we're going to get to that. We are. But first we have a little little tidying up for previous episodes. Because not only have I been reflecting on previous episodes, but you guys have been reaching out. We've been talking, having conversations. I've gotten emails and texts, and in some cases had some phone calls. And... And it's great because it never fails to open my eyes and to force me to think about the things I talk about in in new and unique ways. And so the first thing we really need to discuss in depth is a is a previous episode from episode, from season two. We also need to discuss how tongue died I apparently am at the moment, but that's neither here nor there. A few episodes back, I discussed. My behavior as a middle school young man and how I incessantly bullied one of my black female classmates and referred to her butt over and over, loudly, publicly, disruptively, rudely, racistly, how I referred to her and her butt as bubble butt over and over throughout middle school for years. I think this went on. And I explored. I I hope I explored numerous topics relating to race and gender and the the script I was working with as a seventh and eighth eighth grade young male. However, as as proud isn't the right word, but as Grateful I am for the opportunity to to be able to talk about that incident or that series of incidents from my past. Many of my listeners reached out to me and pointed out how my, my description of the young lady and of black women in general was problematic at best. And how there were, for lack of a better phrase, some blind spots in my description of this young woman and and black women in general. And as much as I hate to admit it, like nothing, nothing that white liberal, white quote unquote woke people hate it many more than that they have a lot to learn when it comes to race. But 
but that's the absolute truth that my listeners really, really schooled me in the best possible way on just some areas in my thinking that I needed to reflect on. And so I want to, I want to share with you basically the content of those conversations and what I need to reflect on. And it's real simple. I referred throughout that episode numerous times, and I've done this in my in my life, you know, my regular life outside of this podcast. I referred to this this young black lady who is now obviously a black woman as a badass, and I referred to her strength. And I really, really, really made two big errors in my description of her personality and disposition and characteristics. And I think there are two errors, not I think, let me rephrase that. I know there are two errors that I have continued to make throughout subsequent decades. And there are two errors that now that they've been brought to my attention, I hope to, to no longer continue to make, but that I wasn't even really aware I was making. So the first error was was my assumption, and I presented it to you guys in this episode, my assumption that just because this young woman didn't storm out of these classrooms where I referred to her posterior over and over loudly and embarrassingly, just because she didn't burst into tears and storm out of the classroom or throw a temper tantrum, that my behavior wasn't really bothering her at the time. And as a parent and an educator, I should have known better. And many of my listeners reached out to me and they said, how dare you? More or less. And to all their credit, they all were interested in educating me more than than shaming me and scolding me. But what these conversations amounted to was basically a collective, how dare you? And the how dare you was, how dare you assume that this young woman was unaffected by your Racist, lewd behavior by your comments about a body part, about a body part that in popular white culture for centuries has been stigmatized and stereotyped and and turned into an exotic entity. How dare you assume that your comments, just because on the surface they didn't seem to be affecting this young woman, how dare you assume that you weren't affecting this young woman? And I have to admit, that's exactly how I presented it in this earlier episode of, of season two. I focused so much on my behavior in this episode. And I guess, big parenthetical side note, that's one of the dangers of this entire podcast is that while I explore whiteness and my own experiences of whiteness, And while I'm often the protagonist of these memories and experiences, and that's all part of the package, and I understand that, but the danger is that I don't foreground myself to the, that I, to the extent that I'm oblivious or blind or unaware of the experiences of others. And that's exactly what I did in this episode. I totally assumed that just because I had no memory of this young woman outwardly reacting to my 100% inappropriate comments that she was fine with it, that it was rolling off her back. And many of my listeners pointed out how dangerous that assumption was and how likely incorrect that assumption was. And they're 100% right. There's no reason that I should have presented it that way. There's no reason even at the time that I should have believed that just because She didn't slap me or burst into tears or curse me out or tell on me or do any other outward reaction. There's no reason that I should believe or should have believed that it wasn't affecting her. So that was the first thing that my listeners really schooled me on. And I appreciate them for that. Because the more I think on it, the more it's like, no fucking duh. Like, what was I even thinking when I recorded that recent podcast? The way I presented it was just really all based in terms of how 
I unintentionally, I think, absolved myself of some of that behavior. Perhaps that was the psychological aspect, and I don't want to delve too deeply into my own psyche because, whoa, none of y'all signed up for that. But maybe that's what I was going for. I could I could take accountability and responsibility for my behavior and I could position it within the realm of these sociological stereotypes that have been created as part of white supremacy over centuries without actually acknowledging the personal pain that I caused another human being. And that's kind of what I did in the way I presented it. And then the second mistake I made in my presentation, and this is a mistake, this is I think an even bigger mistake because it's a mistake I have made continually over the course of my life. And it's a mistake that I really have to sit with. And I, I'm going to address, I think, more deeply in later episodes, not even in this season, but, but season three and four as I get into my adulthood and I explore my romantic relationships with black women. I'm going to explore this theme even more. But the second mistake I made. is the way I presented the strength of black women in that episode. And the mistake was not to talk about the strength black women have. Because anyone who knows a black woman on any level knows the strength that that black woman is capable of. But what I didn't make clear about this strength of black women is that it's it's often a burden and that it's often a strength. And once again, this is not some revelation I've come to on my own. My listeners have helped me come to this revelation. Black women specifically have reached out and helped me come to this revelation. This, this strength, first of all, if I'm not careful, it turns into a stereotype that all black women are strong. And even though it's a seemingly positive stereotype, what many of my listeners, especially my female black listeners, pointed out to me was that that strength that I see is often a burden. And that the strength that black women exhibit, whether it's interpersonal strength, whether it's professional strength within the corporate world, whether it's political strength, organizing voters or acting as elected officials, that strength is not only a burden that's kind of hoisted upon the shoulders of black women, But that strength is often the only role that society allots to black women. And that if we're not careful, and if I'm not careful, I shouldn't even say we in this case. I know I use the royal we a lot to talk about white folks and white men in particular. But in this case, I need to make sure I'm I'm using first person singular. If I'm not careful, that strength becomes the only role that black women are allowed to take. And I talked last episode about the roles that black men are allowed to take in society in my discussion of Alex Haley's book, Roots, in my discussion of Malcolm and Malcolm's autobiography, and how both of those books perhaps appealed to the narrow amount of roles that I had allotted subconsciously to black men. But I think there's also the danger when it comes to black women that if I'm not careful, A, I don't recognize that that strength can often be a burden. Because it means black women are expected to deal with sexism and racism simultaneously and not somehow be broken from it. And that being like even that concept of broken, what the fuck does that even mean? Like, like they're not even allowed to have moments of sadness, moments of pain, moments of hopelessness. Like I'm denying them their full humanity. That's what I need to really be mindful of. And I'll be honest, I, I wasn't in that episode, and I don't think throughout my life, despite the numerous black women that I have been close to on so many levels, I wasn't mindful of the burden of that strength, of how that strength can become a cage, and how that strength, or at least my perception of that strength, how society's perception of that strength can become a very limiting set of options. And that if I'm constantly reaching for that adjective, when I think about black women and when I talk about black women, in my mind, I might be thinking I'm I'm paying them a compliment, 
But if all I'm doing is talking about the strength of black women, I'm talking about a very, very narrow part of the black feminine experience as well. And so I thank the many people who called me on my bullshit from that episode. Because that's honestly what I keep telling y'all I want. And as much as it's not always fun in the moment to be called on your bullshit, that's the whole point of this podcast at the end of the day. Like as much as it's cathartic for me to take this trip down memory lane and as much as these discussions force me to think about my own past, present, and future in new ways, my bigger goal is this ongoing conversation. And I don't know how many listeners I have, whether it's 10, 100, 1,000. I'm hoping that this ongoing conversation kind of tree branches out. And that more and more of my listeners are having these conversations with themselves and their friends and their family members. And so I'm thankful that that episode, as much as I stepped in it and as much as I really failed to acknowledge the pain that that young woman experienced and then kind of doubled down on my failure to acknowledge by celebrating this very narrow version of of strength that I associate with black women, as much as I made those two big errors, I'm grateful and thankful that my listeners, especially my black female listeners, reached out to me and had discussions with me about about how that episode made them feel, both as a woman and then as a black person and then as a black woman, and how my language and how my description of those events made them feel. Because it forced me to come back and reflect. And then obviously I can share that reflection with y'all. So like I said, these are that theme specifically will get explored in its own entire episode. Because it's really, really led me to think about a lot of my personal relationships as an adult with black women. Second piece of housekeeping is more in the context of today's episode. But I want to reach back, not as far back as the recent discussion of black women that I just had. I want to reach back just to our most recent episode, episode five of season two, where I talked about Malcolm and particularly the Malcolm X beanie that my aunt purchased me one Christmas and that I wore with pride most of my freshman year, or I guess it would have been second semester of my freshman year. And I talked about in that episode and I have been racking my brain and maybe that's one reason why there's been such a delay in recording this episode, but I've been, I talked about and I've been racking my brain about how angry white kids were with me for wearing that Malcolm X beanie. And I've talked about how it wasn't the white kids who you would assume would be angry. It wasn't the camouflage wearing, hunting, Confederate flag waving, dipping their lip white kids. And I realized I just painted with a real broad brush. But it wasn't those kids who were outwardly, who you kind of knew were uncomfortable, or at least you assumed were uncomfortable with the concept of blackness and black people. It wasn't those kids who got most upset by me wearing the Malcolm X beanie. It was those older white kids who who I aspired to be, the older white kids who seemed to to love black culture, or at the very least were immersed in black culture. And hung out with black kids and had black friends and listened to rap music and borrowed words from the black vernacular. Those were the kids who were so upset that I wore the Malcolm X beanie. And in episode five, I had two main hypotheses as to why those kids were so upset. And I think I know that those hypotheses weren't enough. So I want to add an addendum onto those two hypotheses. I want to lengthen that list. But just to review, those two hypotheses were pretty straightforward. The first one was that deep down these kids were comfortable with, even if they weren't necessarily outwardly racist, they were comfortable with the structure of white supremacy that existed in our society and still exists in our society, but I'm talking about it in the past, so that's why I'm using the past tense. They were comfortable with the structure of white supremacy that existed in our society And that Malcolm and pretty much anyone else from the civil rights era or anyone who's dealing with politics in general 
challenged that structure and made them uncomfortable. Even if they couldn't articulate why they were uncomfortable, they knew they were uncomfortable, and that's why they reacted with anger towards me. Now, it also means they probably weren't listening too deeply to some of the lyrics of the rappers they were following, but we know that happens all the time, right? Like, people listen to political music and don't necessarily take the political messages out of it. They perceive differently. Or they listen to, you know, they hear what they want to hear is what I'm, I guess I'm getting at. But that's one of my hypotheses from last episode was that they were just uncomfortable with the idea of challenging white supremacy in any way. And then the second hypothesis, which I guess is more like a, these are more like a 1A and a 1B because they're, they're very closely related, is that they couldn't imagine a society that wasn't structured in a hierarchical fashion. And they basically could not imagine that black power was anything other than anti-white. And because white supremacy and white power, sorry, not white supremacy, because inherently white supremacy obviously is hierarchical, but because white power is inherently hierarchical, not inherently, but historically hierarchical, that they couldn't imagine that black power was anything else. They couldn't see black power as black pride, black equality, black strength, black justice. They just heard black power. And they associated Malcolm with black power. And when they thought of black power, they thought of black supremacy. And I guess that makes sense because white power has always meant white supremacy. So those are my two hypotheses about why these white kids were so upset last episode. And I, I've been racking my brain because I just felt inadequate. Those explanations. And I think these new explanations aren't necessarily going to feel less inadequate, but are going to give my listeners more to think about. So the third thing I've, I've been thinking about is that, and I, I've seen this throughout my life, and I've probably been guilty of this as well. Many white folks, even the most or especially the most well-meaning liberal, quote unquote, woke white folks you can imagine often want to imagine that we live in a post-racial world and that anything that reminds them that we don't makes them uncomfortable. And so maybe that's what these white kids were, were reacting to, that they believed, despite all the evidence to the contrary, but they believed that in the early 1990s that America no longer had to worry about the scourge of white supremacy and racism, and that therefore Malcolm's ideas and beliefs, to resurrect Malcolm's ideas and beliefs and the symbols associated with Malcolm's ideas and beliefs was unnecessary and, and borderline reverse racist itself. Now, obviously, even that phrase reverse racist is, and reverse racism is extremely problematic, um, and I'm not going to delve deeply into why I think it's problematic, but I encourage my listeners to really, really dig deeply into that phrase because because you can make a really strong argument that, that when white folks call something reverse racism, A, you could argue reverse racism doesn't really exist in the context of American history. And you could also argue that when white folks use that phrase, all they're really trying to say is, hey, stop calling me out for being racist. But reverse racism feels better to say for them. But maybe, maybe that's it. Maybe these white kids really just thought we lived in a post-racial world and were just uncomfortable with anything that reminded them that they weren't. But then my, another hypothesis came to my mind, and I guess this is what I was getting at in episode five, but I don't think I clearly articulated it is that maybe these kids were just the epitome of culture vultures. Maybe I'm being way too kind. And maybe they just saw their black friend and black culture and black fashion and black music and black vernacular as objects of coolness. And they just wanted to be associated with what they thought was cool. And deep down, they didn't give a fuck about black people or the black experience. And so maybe my wearing 
a symbol from the civil rights movement, a symbol as, as kind of clear and direct as, as the silver X on a black background. Maybe that really shamed them in a way that maybe once again, they couldn't articulate, but they knew they were angry about. Because it also, after I fit, after I recorded episode five, I also thought about how I would encounter similar antipathy when I would wear FUBU clothing later in life, like in my late teens and early twenties. And FUBU stood for for us, by us. And it was a black clothing company that had a brief yet quite popular heyday about the same time that, you know, academics and Mecca and that type of those type of companies were popular and, and white kids would get so mad at me. Some white kids would get so mad at me and say, that's reverse racism. How do you wear something that sits for us by us? And once again, it was that I, I'm still not a hundred percent sure because none of these angry white kids were willing to have deep philosophical discussions with me. And I probably wasn't either at the time, but I think it's just the notion that these four hypotheses that somehow black power in the way that it forces white folks to think about even allies and maybe especially allies think about their own role as perpetuating racism or actively fighting racism and their own role in consuming black culture just makes them a little too uncomfortable. And that maybe these white kids were perfectly fine with black consumerist culture that didn't make them think too deeply about race. And so they could listen to rap music as long as they didn't think about the messages behind maybe Public Enemy's lyrics or some of Tupac's lyrics. Although and this was also the time when when black music, at least mainstream black rap music, was taking a bit of a, a turn and was becoming at least less superficially political, less on the surface political. And so maybe that made it easier for them to not think in political terms. But there was just so much antipathy from white folks to that that black Malcolm X beanie. So much. And I've, I've just been thinking so much about it since I recorded that recent episode. I wanted I wanted to circle back. And add add to that list of hypotheses. And even as I'm, I'm having this discussion now, it still feels inadequate. But I felt I felt I had to bring it back up. And I'm hoping that maybe my listeners can reach out to me. And give me a better sense, maybe, of what, what they're seeing was going on. And I wonder this, I'm a, before I move into today's topic, I wonder if those white kids who had black friends in high school when they were 16 and 17, I wonder if they still have black friends when they're in their 40s or late 30s. I don't know any of them anymore. I do know I have former white friends who had black friends in high school and no longer have contact with any black people. So I wonder if those same white kids who were angry at me for wearing the Malcolm X beanie, even though they had black friends in high school, I wonder if they still had black friends. I really do. And if one of them is listening, please reach out and tell me. Like, if you are hearing about yourself in this story, please tell me. I really want to know. All right. Today's story involves me wearing the Malcolm X beanie and also gaining a bit of a reputation as a shoplifter. And so this, this story happens freshman year of high school as well. And I've mentioned some of my teenage adolescent hijinks earlier in this season. And I briefly touched on my shoplifting. It was in the episode where I talked about also my, my enjoyment of throwing projectiles at cars. And how, as a white teenager, I was totally cocooned and protected by white privilege in that behavior. And how, if I had been a black teenager, I would have been risking my life, literally. And so I want to circle back to this concept of me as, as a shoplifter. It was something I did frequently in middle school and early in high school. And the only reason I did it. I can tell you right now, and I even knew it at the time. Well, two reasons. One is just the adrenaline rush that comes with breaking the law 
in a way like that, especially at that age, with just getting away with something that you're not supposed to get away with. But the second reason is it made me feel cool. It made me feel tough. It made me feel like a badass. And the second reason probably overrode the first reason because that adrenaline rush came with a shit ton of anxiety, especially shoplifting things that were more difficult to shoplift, like stealing candy from 7-Eleven, at least back in the 90s before there were cameras and shit wasn't a big deal. But stealing clothing from stores and things like that, that's a bigger deal. Or electronics from from stores, that's a bigger deal. And that, that came with a lot of anxiety. But I wanted my peers to know that I didn't give a fuck because that mattered to me, right? That was tied up in my sense of masculinity, parenthetically toxic masculinity, that a real man, you had to be tough and you had to be good at sports and you had to be good at fighting. You had to be willing to break the law. And I was pretty sure I wasn't that good at fighting, although I didn't want to admit it to myself. Thought I was okay at sports, but looking back on it, probably wasn't that good. And so I saw shoplifting as another way to to enhance my sense of coolness and my sense of manhood. And so occasionally, I would steal things for friends or for acquaintances, especially if those acquaintances were kids that I thought were, were better athletes or cooler than me. And then, you know, maybe steal a T-shirt and give it to them to enhance my reputation, kind of almost like a a modern adolescent, oh, I dare you, I bet you're afraid to do that type thing. And then I would pull it off and earn some some quote-unquote street cred in their eyes. So I'm setting the scene of where today's story is going. As a freshman, wearing the Malcolm X beanie, which I didn't steal, but I, I'm guessing some of my classmates maybe thought I did. But I, I had stolen a few t-shirts and I want to say it was Bob Marley or Malcolm X t-shirts from a local record store in Harrisonburg, Virginia. This record store was called Town and Campus Records and it was an independent record store and it was really, really cool and obviously they sold music and sometimes, and remember this is pre-internet like some of my younger listeners, you have no idea what pre-internet was like but it's not as easy as today to access it wasn't as easy as today to access material, whether it's music or or apparel that wasn't necessarily mainstream. And in the early 90s, a lot of, especially in Harrisonburg, Virginia, a lot of rap music, a lot of black music wasn't mainstream. You weren't going to necessarily be able to buy it at Sam Goody. And if you couldn't buy it at Sam Goody in the mall, then you couldn't buy it. Unless you maybe had a friend who had relatives in New York and brought back a mixtape or something like that. But town and campus had a pretty wide variety of Music and then apparel as well. And although my Malcolm X beanie wasn't stolen from that store, a few t-shirts, one that I think I wore and then one that I'd given to another friend I had stolen from that store. And they were either Malcolm X or Bob Marley t-shirts or probably both. An acquaintance, a black acquaintance, who was an incredibly good athlete, who, although I probably didn't know it at the time, but who, looking back on it, I definitely looked up to. And he was a football teammate of mine. He began asking me to steal him a Malcolm X t-shirt from this store. Repeatedly. Fairly incessantly. Not threateningly. Although I perceived it as a threat. But now that I look back on it, it was more just persistence. And I decided, yeah, I'm going to do it. I kind of put him off for a while. Because as much as I liked the reputation for shoplifting, I wasn't a fucking master criminal. So my shoplifting wasn't typically, especially when it came to like clothing and items like that. And I know in the case of these previous T-shirts that I had stolen and given to other friends or football teammates, it wasn't something I planned out in advance. It, it was more one of those things where a few of us in a small group had been in that store, maybe before a game or maybe after practice. And in the, in the heat of the moment, I had stolen. So when he's asking me at school to steal him a Malcolm X T-shirt, and I remember wearing the Malcolm X beanie, 
And I don't mind that many people are probably assuming I stole that as well. I wasn't going around telling people that my my aunt gave it to me for Christmas. When he's asking me to steal this Malcolm X t-shirt, I'm a little nervous because I'm not, like I said, I'm not a master criminal. I'm not a cat burglar who like plans out my shoplifting. So I put him off for a couple days, maybe even a couple weeks. But he was fairly persistent. Yo, Jimmy, why don't you steal me one of them shirts? Give me one of them shirts. A, I was too dumb to like charge people. That should have been like, if I'm going to be shoplifting t-shirts and shit, might as well make some money off of it. That never even crossed my mind. So I wasn't an entrepreneur at all. But B, I was afraid to tell him no. And I think there's two reasons I was afraid to tell him no. And one reason it has to do with white supremacy and one reason has to do with adolescence. The white supremacy reason is, in my mind, he was a tough black kid and he might beat me up if I tell him no. Now, when you hear about the conclusion of this story, you'll find out how fucking stupid that assumption was. But I, I'm not ashamed to admit today, but I was ashamed to even consider it back then. That's definitely one reason I didn't tell him no. He was tough and he was black. And in my mind, that equaled badass. So there were all kinds of racist stereotypes going through my mind. Subconsciously. Didn't want to admit that, but that was definitely part of it. And then the second part was I just didn't want anyone to know I was afraid of stealing. Or as a 14-year-old boy, afraid of anything. But especially especially stealing, which I'd kind of carved out a niche for myself. So, I eventually relented. And not even eventually relented. I think most times I told him, yeah, yeah, I'll get to it. And like would put him off. But eventually one weekend I just said, all right, whatever. I'll steal him a fucking t-shirt. I'll ride down there on my bike one weekend to this store, which was in... You know, downtown Harrisburg, a few miles from my home. Nothing in Harrisburg is that far from each other, at least back then. And even today, not so much. Rode my bike down to this store. Saturday afternoon. Store is empty. Go into the store. Empty store. Now, mind you, this store is not much bigger than than a studio apartment. So, my dumbass decides, even... By myself, with no other customers, that I can somehow walk in there as a 14-year-old kid and just casually steal a t-shirt and then walk out without even buying anything. And that's exactly what I tried to do. The t-shirts were in the back of the store. I browsed around for a little bit, you know, trying to make the, the one clerk who was probably... I don't know. He was definitely older than me, but probably, you know, 24, 25. Who knows? Looking back on it, he couldn't have been that much older than me. Maybe even a college kid, but I think he was a little older than that. Browse around for a while. Try to put this clerk at ease. Try to pretend like I'm just, you know, looking for the right item. Just casual. At least I thought I was. I'm sure. I'm sure. Shoplifting was like blaring in his mind the whole time. Eventually, I make my way back to the t-shirts in the back of the store. think I catch a moment when he's not looking. Grab one of these Malcolm t-shirts off the rack. Stuff it under my shirt. Try to walk out. Spoiler alert. I'm guessing most of y'all figured this out by now, but I didn't make it out of the store. It caught me red-handed. And if I had been a little, maybe more of a badass, I would have just tried to, like, run and take off. But it was a it was a pretty small store, and I think he blocked the exit, and he immediately, like I immediately gave up the goods, or he immediately pulled it out from under my shirt. I don't remember the exact details, but it, my my resistance to his accusation did not last long, and he called the police, and the police station was literally a few blocks away, and the police were there very quickly. I don't know if I was cuffed. Mind you, I'm 14, and I'm a white kid in a small southern town, so there's a good chance I wasn't cuffed. And and that little piece of privilege isn't even the focus of this story. But the police were were not in any way aggressive with me. And although that's not the focus of my story, I do need to know, I need my listeners to know, that had I not been a white kid, the police 
more than likely would have reacted differently to me in the early 90s in a small southern town. But I get arrested. I'm probably crying because I was not expecting to get arrested. I'd never been arrested before. I probably thought I was going to jail. I knew my parents were going to be pissed, especially my dad. Pissed. And I spent most of my, my adolescence and teen years deathly afraid of my father and his temper. And that's probably, if this was a podcast about psychology, that would probably be worth a few episodes. Um, but since that doesn't squarely fit within the, the topic of journey and into whiteness, we're going we're gonna to put that to the side for a moment. But end up in the police station. Police officer calls my father. And I don't remember much of what was said or done. I don't remember. I'm, I'm guessing I got booked, but I don't, I don't know. And I go home. You know, my parents are pissed. I definitely get grounded for a long time. But none of that is why I'm telling this story. The reason I'm telling you this story is twofold. First of all, my black classmate who asked me to steal this shirt for him obviously never got his shirt. I never was able to deliver upon my promise of, yeah, I'll steal your shirt. And you know what? And at the time, I didn't think on this enough. I really didn't. But he didn't. He didn't really mind at all. Maybe he had heard I got caught. Because I ended up having to do community service hours. And, you know, there's no real secrets in a high school. And this is pre-social media, but there still weren't really secrets. So maybe he heard I got caught and he felt bad for me. But now that I look back on it, it makes me think of how much I had perceived him as a threat simply because he was black and he was a good athlete. And how that if a white classmate who I had perceived differently had asked me to steal a t-shirt, how I probably wouldn't have gone through with it. How I might not or probably not have felt threatened by it. And it turns out how fucking stupid it was for me to feel threatened by it because he never once said anything directly threatening me, nor did he get angry when this promised t-shirt was never delivered. At the time, I didn't reflect on any of that. But looking back on this incident, it is clear to me that my desire for street cred was probably not the main reason I attempted to steal this t-shirt. But my subconscious racial stereotyping of this classmate, who I perceived as a bit of a threat, but also perceived as cool and wanted to impress. But in both cases, those are, those are racial stereotypes related to his blackness. Because of his blackness, I wanted to steal his t-shirt. And then the second reason that I'm telling you all this story is because immediately after I got arrested, and I don't really know if this affected the outcome of the adjudication of my arrest, because thinking about it now, you know, misdemeanor shoplifting of a $20 t-shirt is probably not a big deal in the eyes of a court system, at least, at least once again for a white teenager. But immediately upon my arrest, getting home, my dad called one of his friends, a friend he knew from church. And this friend was a local lawyer, and he was able to get advice from this lawyer. And this lawyer walked him through what was going to happen and helped him out. I never had to go to court or anything, so I think the lawyer worked out some kind of – and this was, once again, probably something that already existed. So I'm not saying the lawyer got me off for some major felony, but it was some kind of pretrial, first-time offender minor misdemeanor thing, and the lawyer handled all of it. And the reason I'm telling you this part is because it really dawned on me as I reflected on episodes for this podcast, how one of the aspects of white privilege that, that isn't talked about enough is how white whiteness gives you access to these networks of power that you otherwise 
A, don't even maybe know exist, but if you know they exist, you certainly don't have access to these networks. My parents were not wealthy. My parents didn't have the money to pay for a lawyer for this misdemeanor charge or any other charge because the shoplifting is really not the point of this story. The point is because of our whiteness, my parents had access to a lawyer, a pro bono lawyer. And I know some of my listeners are thinking, well, hold on. That doesn't make any fucking sense. There are plenty of black lawyers. So who's to say that a black family wouldn't have had a lawyer friend? And you're 100% right. That's possible. But what I'm saying is it's much less likely. And that's because of legacies of systemic racism, because of legacies of segregated school systems, because of legacies of making it hard for young black children throughout the 20th century in the South, but especially in Virginia and really throughout the country, but especially in Virginia, to get an equitable education and to be able to get an undergraduate degree and then be able to get a law degree, assuming because of racial inequities in our economic system that you could even have afforded all those steps. So, yes, a black family could have had a friend that was a lawyer and that friend could have stepped in and helped them. But because of centuries of systemic racism and decades of systemic racism in the educational system, it's much less likely that that black family would have a lawyer friend who would be willing to work for free. And it's almost guaranteed that in the South, especially in a small city in the South, that that black family would be talking to police officers and lawyers, and magistrates that look like them. Because I didn't even mention that part of the story. Most of my listeners, you didn't need to hear it because it was already assumed. The police officer who arrested me, the magistrate or judge who made a decision about how many community service hours I was going to receive in order to avoid having this permanently on my record. They looked like my father. They had sons who looked like me. So as soon as I got arrested, as soon as my father found out I was arrested, I was already able to access this network of whiteness that had I been a black teenager, and even if the police officer had been completely kind to me, and even if the store clerk had not lied about my behavior, and even if the judge had followed the letter of the law, I would not have had access to. And so I want you as my listeners to think about how often those networks, and, and once again, I'm speaking to my white listeners, I want you to think about how often you have access to networks of power, to social networks, to political networks that you would otherwise not have access to, whether it's a job recommendation or a friend of a friend situation or a friend of your parents who happens to be a lawyer. Think about how your whiteness gives you entree into these worlds that you would otherwise not have access to. Because we talk about white privilege so much in, in actual events. Like white privilege keeps me from getting pulled over and keeps me from getting murdered once I do get pulled over. That is a fact. And white privilege means that my family is more likely to have access to generational wealth. That is a fact. And white privilege means that I, as a young white man, was more likely to go to a school with better paid teachers and more resources. That is a fact. But I don't think we often, as white people, we often enough think about the networks of power, these interpersonal relationships, these webs, these invisible webs of privilege that exist. And they exist to us only because we are white. Because I don't know if my case with shoplifting would have ended up differently had I not had access to this lawyer. It may not have in this specific instance of shoplifting a $20 t-shirt. But had it been a more serious crime, I guarantee you knowing that lawyer would have benefited me because that lawyer knew all the judges and magistrates in that town. He knew the police officers in that town. He had previous relationships with them, perhaps going back to his father, right? We're not that far removed in the 90s from the segregated South when I guarantee you that no black folks had 
real strong ties to anybody in the criminal justice system. So now in the early 90s, my dad's white friend, my dad's friend who's a lawyer, is able to go to bat for me in a way that would have been unlikely had I been a black teenager. And so that, as I thought about the Malcolm X beanie before recording the last episode, and as I thought about my my really obnoxious immaturity as an adolescent involving shoplifting and other things I did, this incident came to mind. And at first, I didn't think it necessarily fit within the framework of this podcast discussing white privilege. But then the more I reflected on it, the more I realized that, hey, the only reason I even attempted to steal that T-shirt on that Saturday afternoon was because I had stereotyped a black classmate as as someone who's cool and threatening. And then B, as soon as I got arrested for attempting to steal that T-shirt, I was given access to a network of power. I was given access to a lawyer that extended even beyond what my economic means allowed me access to, that my whiteness and my family's whiteness gave me access to a network of power that I would have otherwise not had access to. And so that's how Malcolm X and shoplifting and a small southern town and whiteness and racial stereotypes on my part all collide in this episode. I hope, like always, I've given y'all a lot to think about. Love to hear from you all, like always. My email is not changed, jameslincoln313 at gmail. You can find me. That's the best way to reach out to me. If you have my number or whatever, you feel free to call me or text me. I'm not on social media as much as I used to be, but you can find me on social media. You can definitely email me. Always, always in the market for your stories. Always am willing to listen and excited to listen to your reactions to this podcast. And I wish you peace and love. And I promise you that episode seven and eight will come sooner rather than later. All right, y'all. Until next time, see ya.